In this edition of the Pleasant View Baptist Podcast, we conclude Pastor Ed Heading's sermon series, Walking Through the Gospel of John. So, with his sermon entitled, Second Chances, here is Pastor Ed Heading. I encourage you to take your Bible and turn over to John chapter 21. John chapter 21, it's good to be back after a couple weeks of vacation, uh, 10 days on the ocean. That's one of my favorite places to be on vacation to sit and read, reflect, and be in the ocean, and then to watch my son walk across the stage and graduate last Saturday from Liberty University. The last kid, no more college payments. Amen. So, I told him, he said, I want to go to graduate school. I said, good luck. Hope you get a good job, right? So I told him. So, anyway, yeah, it's good to be back. And uh, we're in John chapter 21, and it's interesting that I look back and May of 2016 is when we started into this journey of the Gospel of John. Here it is, the end of May, and we're finishing two years later. So John chapter 21, look at verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, the disciples, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. Verse 17, he said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you that when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands And another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that's going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that his disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he will remain till I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. And we know that his testimony is true. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. And may God add his blessing at the reading of his word this morning. Well, as we think about this God of the second chances and the hundred chances and the over and over, we see how Jesus is coming to talk to Peter and uh, to see how, as Peter denied him three times, Jesus is going to begin the process of restoration and building into his life by asking these three questions. So, in Thomas Akempis' book, The Imitation of Christ, Thomas Akempis says says this, Jesus has many who love his kingdom in heaven, but few who bear his cross. He has many who desire comfort, but few who desire suffering. He finds many to share his feast, but few his fasting. All desire to rejoice with him, but few are willing to suffer for his sake. Many follow Jesus to the breaking of bread, but few to the drinking of the cup of his passion. 
Many admire his miracles, but few follow him in the humiliation of the cross. What Jesus is asking for is a total commitment, dedication of our lives to him. John MacArthur said the true gospel call to follow Jesus Christ is a call to self-denial. And in our current culture, in the wealthiest nation of the world, that's not a popular message by any means. But that's what Jesus desires of us, because if we will lose everything, he will give us everything that we need. And the joy that we're looking for and the peace that passes all understanding that the world doesn't have. So Christianity is not a call for man to better himself by his self-will and education. That's moralism. That's not the gospel. Christianity is admitting that on our own, in our own spiritual condition, our own ability, apart from God, we cannot do God's work apart from him transforming us and making us new by the power of regeneration. Titus 3.5 says he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. After salvation, Christianity is God's call to give our lives up completely to him and become his true disciple. Now, some debate whether that salvation is the point in time. They call it lordship salvation, that you have to understand and accept and deny yourself and become a true disciple of Christ. And there's others, as we read in the Bible, there's the possibility that you can become a believer and be a carnal Christian. As we try to sort all that out, the point is that when we come to Christ, And as we get to know him more, we should surrender more and more areas of our life to him. In losing it all, one gains everything. That's why I like that song by the Newsboys, Live with Abandon. It's a great song to think about when we think of this message. Jesus' message is not user-friendly. He's not asking for a partial commitment, as we saw in that video. He wants everything. Now, he's not promising ease. He's not promising comfort. But a life that brings ultimate fulfillment, purpose, peace, and joy both now and into eternity. And I've had so many Christians come to me and say, well, doesn't God want us to be happy? And as I read this Bible over and over, God wants us to be holy, holy. And as we obey his word and follow his commands and seek holiness, he will bring joy. He will bring happiness. He will bring peace into our lives as a byproduct of seeking after him. So John 21, the beginning of that chapter, 1 through 14, dealt with answering the question, would God provide for the disciples after Jesus ascends to heaven? Jesus used the illustration of gathering the disciples on the shore for a breakfast, nets full of fish, to show God's divine care prepared for the disciples for the rest of their earthly lives. Now, ironically, around another fire, you remember Peter denied Jesus as he was around a fire three times. He denied him. Now Jesus and Peter are finishing breakfast. They're around a breakfast fire once again, but he's using this opportunity to bring him back and restore him and build into him because, after all, Peter is going to be the leader of the disciples. He's going to be the leader of the early church until he and Paul share that responsibility in the book of Acts. So in this last section of John's gospel, we get a picture of what Jesus thinks a committed follower of his looks like. We're going to talk about how we should love Christ more than anything, to be a daily living sacrifice and to follow Jesus wherever he leads. The primary mark of 
the, of a Christian is one who follows the Shema in Deuteronomy chapter 6 where it says to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your mind. And then when you get to the New Testament, he says then you're to love your neighbor as yourself and to love one another by obeying my commands to follow out what I've told you to do. And Jesus and Peter had met previously after the resurrection. According to Luke chapter 24 and 1 Corinthians 15, they probably already reconciled. And Peter's probably already asked for forgiveness. But this is Jesus' last words to Peter on earth as he prepares him to be the leader left behind with the power of the Holy Spirit to fulfill the kingdom work. Let's look at the challenge Jesus gives to Peter to follow him for the rest of his life. And I encourage you to take out your outline and fill in these blanks. Number one, a true disciple of Jesus Christ is willing to love Jesus Christ more than anything else. That's a very simplistic statement, but it's something that we should really evaluate our soul about. Are we willing to love him more than anything else? Look at verse 15. When they had finished breakfast in John 21, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. We see in these verses a Greek play on words. First, though, we see Jesus gently rebuking Peter by calling him Simon, son of John. That was the term that Peter used to describe himself when he first came to meet Jesus. And that was how Jesus recognized him. And now he's pointing out to him, oh, so you want to go back to fishing. So you want to go back to your former lifestyle. This was a very gentle but poignant rebuke to him. Jesus had later changed his name to Peter, which was called the Little Rock. And so he wanted to point that out very importantly. He says, do you love me, Simon, more than all of this? He's saying, do you love me more now than your former way of life? Stop acting like your old self, but instead follow me because I love you. He's using that term agape love, God's love. Peter answers that he has a brotherly love for Jesus, but not an agape love at this point. Jesus says to him at the end of that first question, take care of my lambs. These are the baby believers, those who are vulnerable, who are immature, who are just growing, new to the faith. Peter appeals to Jesus' omniscience in this exchange. The second question, Jesus uses that term agape love. And then he says to Peter, who uses that phileo, brotherly love, tend my sheep. Means tending like a herdsman who's out at the pasture with a flock. This is more about the early church, makeup of mature and young believers. And the picture of a pastor and a shepherd and the whole scope of ministry and what that entails. And as God often talks about the church, he talks about it as if a sheep with an under-shepherd, the pastor. Some examples in Acts chapter 20 and verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves, Paul said, to the Ephesian elders and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. Peter, toward the end of his life, wrote this epistle in 1 Peter 5. He said, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, 
exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. In John chapter 21 and verse 17, we go back to the narrative, and he said to Peter the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Peter's grieved that Jesus had to ask him for a third time, but he's making this valuable lesson for him to remind himself, a poignant illustration. This time, Jesus uses that word brotherly love, and he's saying, is that all the depth of the relationship that you have with me? Is that a brotherly love? Not a deeper love like God and I have? And Peter responds with that brotherly love, that term once again. Jesus accepts Peter with all his imperfections and without at that moment a total commitment and yet still charged him to care for the flock. Notice here, he says, he uses the term dear sheep in the original language. The people in his church are precious to him and he dearly loves them. Well, Peter would remain committed to the Lord and God's calling him for the rest of his earthly life. He would faithfully and boldly proclaim the gospel. He would faithfully lead and feed the flock. And then, as we know, at the end of his life, he he was crucified. The question is, what has God done in your life to bring you to a place of full surrender of your will in the areas of your life for him? What What does he need to do to have all of you? What is it going to take? There's a story that Billy Graham read about a young man who was, back in the 60s, was a big follower of communism. He had dedicated his life to the communist way and Karl Marx. And it was based on, in 1903, one man with 17 followers began his attack on the world. His name was Lenin. By 1918, the number had increased to 40,000. And with that 40,000, he gained control of 160 million people of Russia. And the movement has gone on and controls over one-third of the world's population. Billy Graham read this letter about this young man who broke off his engagement with this woman because he was more committed to communism than he was to getting married. He said, we communists have a high casualty rate. We're the ones who get shot and hung and lynched and tarred and feathered and jailed and slandered and ridiculed and fired from our jobs. And in every other way, made as uncomfortable as possible. A certain percentage of us get killed or imprisoned. We live in virtual poverty. We turn back to the party every penny we make above what is absolutely necessary to keep us alive. We communists don't have the time or the money for many movies or concerts or T-bone steaks or decent homes or new cars. We've been described as fanatics. We are fanatics. Our lives are dominated by one great overshadowing factor, the struggle for world communism. Excuse me. We communists have a philosophy of life which no amount of money could buy. We have a cause to fight for, a definite purpose in life. We subordinate our petty personal selves into a great movement of humanity, and if our personal lives seem hard or our egos appear to suffer through subordination to the party, then we are adequately compensated by the thought that each of us, in a small way, is contributing to something new and true and better for mankind. There's one thing in which I am in dead earnest, and that is the communist cause— It is my life, my business, my religion, my hobby, my sweetheart, my wife and mistress, my bread and meat. 
I work at in the daytime and dream of it at night. Its hold on me grows, not lessens as time goes on. Therefore, I cannot carry on a friendship, a love affair, or even a conversation without relating it to this force, which both drives and guides my life. I evaluate people, books, ideas, and actions according to how they affect the communist cause and by their attitude toward it. I've already been in jail because of my ideas, and if necessary, I'm ready to go before a firing squad. Talk about commitment. Commitment to a cause that he believes in. What is the level of commitment that we have toward Christ and his gospel? So here's the application. Have you counted the cost for following Jesus and decided to pay the price? Have you counted the cost for following Jesus and decided to pay the price? Jesus is about to go on and share with Peter what he himself will face in death. So that brings us to our second point. A true disciple of Jesus Christ is willing to be a daily living sacrifice for him. A daily living sacrifice for him. Someone said, one of my friends in college said that the hardest thing about the Christian life is that it's so daily. That every morning you wake up and you've got to put the armor on and you've got to get ready to go to battle and you've got to face the temptations and you've got to be ready. And uh, it's a daily commitment. If we could just make one sacrifice of ourselves, it would be so much easier, wouldn't it, in the flesh? But it's something we have to do day after day, moment by moment, to allow the Holy Spirit to flow through us. Look at verse 18 of John 21. Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, to Simon Peter, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. Jesus describes here how Peter will die a martyr's death by being crucified like he would. And tradition, history tells us that Peter thought that he wasn't worthy to die crucified in the upright position, so he chose to be crucified upside down. This shows that if we sell out for Christ... There's even a possibility, I hope, God forbid, it happens to no one in this room, but it means that be willing to live for Christ could mean giving up your very life. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus talks about what the price is to be a disciple. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And that famous missionary, Jim Elliott, from Wheaton College, a very famous statement that he made, he said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. We can gain a lot of things in this life, but it can keep us from our relationship, our commitment to Christ. And we're no fool to give those things up that are going to bring us eternal value and reward in the end. Peter would serve Jesus faithfully for three decades. In 1 Peter 4, toward the end of his life, Peter made the statement, If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. One of the early church fathers, Augustine, or Augustine, however you want to pronounce his name. He lived about 
in the year about 385, he was dealing with his own life. He'd been confronted with the gospel. He wanted to receive Christ, but he loved his sexual sin too much. And he knew that if he became a believer, he would have to give that up. And so as he was wrestling with this in his life, one day he was outdoors with his friend, Ellipsius, and he heard a child singing a song, pick it up and read it, pick it up and read it. And it wasn't a song that he knew, and he thought it was part of a game the kids were talking about, but somehow he said God prompted him to go pick up a Bible and read it. And he said he just opened the Bible up at random, and it came to this verse in Romans chapter 13. I say random in quotes. Not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual excess and lust, not in quarreling and jealousy, rather put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the desires of the flesh. And at that moment, he became a believer in Jesus Christ. Reading the scripture, Augustine felt as if his heart was flooded with light. He totally left that life of sin. He was baptized at an Easter vigil with his friend Ellipsis and Ellipsis' son, Ediadatus, on April 24, 387 A.D. And later, reflecting on this experience, Augustine wrote his famous prayer based on his conversion experience. You have made us for yourself, Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. That's what it means to be a true follower, a disciple of Jesus Christ, is that no matter what happens in your life, to have that place of rest, that place of peace, that anchor for your soul, as it talks about in Hebrews. I hope you found that place of rest, that no matter what comes your way, you're okay because God is ultimately in charge, and he has your best interests in mind to shape you and conform you into the image of Jesus Christ. He will protect you, and he only allows the things to come into your life that are going to make you better and stronger and grow in a deeper relationship with him. So here's your application. Are you willing to deny yourself when God asks you to? Because he has something better for us. It's so easy for us in this microwave society and short-term gratification to want the quick fix instead of realizing the long-term benefits of the long road of obedience to follow him. The last thing today is our true disciple of Jesus Christ is willing to follow Jesus Christ, wherever he leads. That's a tough one. That's a really difficult one. I know for for my wife and I, we've been away from our families. We lived away from our families for over 35 years. And uh, it's, it's caused a toll in some cases in our relationship. But we were committed to going where God wants us to go. In John chapter 21, verses 19 through 23, and after saying this, He said to him, follow me. As Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper, and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? And when Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die, yet Jesus did not say to him he was not to die. But if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? The most important thing about the Christian life is to follow wherever Jesus leads. Do do what he tells you to do. Obey what he says to do. The opposite of obedience is what? 
disobedience. And disobedience, according to God's word, is sin, right? We understand that intellectually, but emotionally, when we get to the tough times of obeying or disobeying when the Spirit speak to us, speaks to us, we wrestle and we say, well, I could do that later, or I've got this other important thing to do. But do we really take time to listen and obey his spirit? To go where he wants us to go. To sacrifice where he asks us to sacrifice. Once again, John identifies himself without using his name in verse 20. Peter and Jesus, I can picture it now. They're walking along the shoreline. Jesus asks about, uh, and, and Peter asks Jesus about how John's going to die. And Jesus says to Peter, focus on yourself don't worry about anybody else. Because you and I, we're all on, all on individual spiritual journeys. There's no need to compare or uh, try to see who's better than one another. Because each one of us is made uniquely uh, by God with individual fingerprints different from anyone else. And our lives are going to take a different journey in time. And so he's saying, mind your own business. Focus on your spiritual relationship and your journey. In verse 23, John is merely debunking this false rumor. Are we willing to follow Jesus no matter how it affects our family? That's a hard one to start with right there. Are we willing to follow Jesus no matter how it affects our job? I've had to leave a job because of unethical things that were going on. Are you willing to do that? Are you willing to follow Jesus no matter how it affects your relationship with friends? Friends, family, those are the two really, really tough ones when it comes to having to part ways to follow Jesus instead of your blood relatives or your close friends. Those are tough struggles. And hopefully you don't have to face those, but you have to be willing, be willing to do that. And so as our application here is, are you willing to follow Jesus wherever that leads? Do you love Jesus more than anything? It's easy to say that intellectually, but in the heat of the moment, when it's decision time, are you willing to do what Jesus wants you to do? See how he's preparing Peter to be the leader of the early church. Some very basic things, that principles that he needed to have as he was going to go out and face uh, the, the persecution from an unbelieving world. Well, let's conclude this book of John with a few summary thoughts. Look at verses 24 and 25 as John ends this great book. This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Now, there are many, many other things that Jesus did, and were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. In verse 24, notice that word we, probably referring to him speaking on behalf of the apostles. John is once again reiterating his eyewitness testimony. The word witness or testimony appears 47 times in this book. As we'll talk about in a minute, that's what makes this book such a great book to encourage skeptics and critics and new believers to read. In verse 25, we see that John, under divine inspiration, carefully chose his material with the purpose of presenting Jesus Christ as the Messiah, as the very Son of God. John 1.14, when he talked about how God came and pitched his tent and lived among us, 
so we could behold his glory, the glory of the one and only, full of grace and truth. That God wrapped himself on human flesh in the form of Jesus. He was 100% man, 100% God. And then he goes on and talks about the I am statements, the miracles, the teachings of Jesus, the cross and the resurrection. He was reminding the Israelites that when you reject the massive evidence of who Jesus is, the Messiah, you will face severe judgment and you will face the destruction of Jerusalem, which occurred in 70 AD and the temple was destroyed. And Peter and the apostles would go on and be accused of turning the world upside down in their lifetime, according to Acts chapter 17. All but John died a martyr's death. But they all faithfully proclaimed the truth of Christ and the love for the gospel. Well, here are a few points that we can take away from this gospel of John. First of all, the gospel of John gives us the clearest picture of who Jesus Christ is more than any other book of the Bible. If you want to study Christology, the study of Christ begins with the gospel of John. It's the easiest book to understand. It's written in common Koine Greek, the common language of the day. It's it's the simplest uh, book to, tra- to translate in the New Testament because it's so simple. And it's the first book that I read the next day after I became a believer in Christ. first book I read was the Gospel of John. This, uh, while I was on vacation, I was listening to a message by Ravi Zacharias, and he was talking about several things that we could do to engage this culture, uh, ever-changing culture. And one of his main points was this. Encourage someone... By giving them the Gospel of John, ask them to read it two or three times with an unbiased, unprejudiced viewpoint. And he says, and watch the miracles occur. Watch people come to faith in Christ. Because you get a full understanding of who Christ is. The Gospel of John, second of all, reveals the most intimate of relationships between Jesus and God the Father. Over and over in this book, you see that relationship playing out, how Jesus depends upon the Father. When he's before uh, the people there, getting ready to raise Lazarus from the dead, he says, God, you don't need me to say this out loud, but I'm doing it for the people around me to see the relationship that I have with you, the intimate relationship. Remember at the end, he promises his disciples and you and I that we would have the same relationship with him through his Holy Spirit and subsequently the very word of God. And lastly, the book begs the question over and over as to what will one do with who this Jesus is. How you view Jesus determines your salvation, your eternal destiny. For the Christian, it determines your walk with Christ, what you believe about him. Liberal scholars try to say over and over that Jesus never claimed to be the Son of God. And they must not have read the Gospel of John because over and over and over, I didn't count how many times, but clear or implied many times, you see him referring to himself as the very Son of God. The key word in this Gospel of John is to believe. Now I want to remind you that believe is not sitting down at a desk in a classroom and learning facts, regurgitating them on answers to a test and walking out and being done with it. Believe in the Bible, gnosko means that what you know, you act upon. You live out your life. And that's what um, John reiterated over and over again, to believe. In John 3.3, believe and be born again. 
John 14, 6, believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Believe in John 14 that you can do even greater works. I was so excited this past, these past couple weeks to read about the Women's Choice Center here in Bettendorf, over here on, um, by Heritage in, in Bettendorf. And I can't remember, I tried to look it up to see how long they've been in existence, but they built that building across from Planned Parenthood, and they had people faithfully on the sidewalks at least one day a week praying for those people going to Planned Parenthood. And of course, as you know, Planned Parenthood has now closed that facility. And what's exciting is that God provided a local entrepreneur to purchase that property for $1 million. Once that closing occurred at the end of December, the Life and Family Education Trust has been preparing the Women's Choice Center to purchase that property. It's our plan to redeem the property for the Lord Jesus Christ and take what was evil and turn it into what is good and glorifying to God. He's provided us with the opportunity to spread our wings and set a new course for this ministry and our community. The Women's Choice Center Medical Services will move across the street to occupy one side of the building while our current building will be open to Irwin Hartwell, an absolutely positively kids' academy. It will become a daycare center that also provides an after-school tutoring and enrichment campus for students and summer day camps for children. Then it goes on to say the projected vision for the rest of the property, Planned Parenthood's former building, will be to create a first ever in the Quad Cities a pro-life, pro-family, faith-based family medical practice. Mary Jones Life and Educational Trust Board President states, we've sought direction and advice from not only our board members and staff, from, but from local community leaders that believe a Christian-based family medical practice will fill a big need in our Quad City community. We're taking our time with this process to make sure that every decision we make is thoughtful and covered in prayer. Think about the faithfulness of those people. Day after day, year after year, in January and February, outing on the sidewalk, praying, praying against Planned Parenthood, praying for the people going in there. And the greater works occurred because of their faithfulness over a long period of time. God wants us to do greater, greater works. I think about just a few weeks ago, how the Iowa legislature passed that fetal heart law and how now that if they can detect a heartbeat in the state of Iowa, they're not allowed to perform an abortion. And of course, it's being attacked in the courts and all those sorts of things. But to think that would ever happen based on that Roe versus Wade decision back in January of 1973. Never give up praying and making your voice heard. God can do amazing things. And then he talked about believe in Jesus as the resurrection and the life. Thinking about Lazarus being in the tomb for four days. Even one of the sisters said he's going to stink if he comes out. And Jesus raises him from the dead. And then, of course, his prediction of his own death on the cross, his burial, and his resurrection. The key thought as we close out this Gospel of John is what will you do with this Jesus from the Gospel of John in this life and the life to come? That's what every human being on this planet is going to be confronted with. What are you going to do with this Jesus, with this one who is connected to God, and how are you going to live out your life? Probably C.S. Lewis, probably one of his most famous quotes is this. I'm trying to here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish things 
that people say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you could fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. And I hope as you think about your life, have you given your life and dedicated your life to him? I don't know where you are. Maybe you've done it at one point in your life, or maybe you've had to do it several times. But as we see from this passage of scripture, that God is the God of the second chances and the ongoing chance after chance after chance. I got saved in October of 1972, and a few months later, my parents moved us to, from Pennsylvania to Virginia. And as a young Christian, nine months old, going to summer camp for the first time with my sister, never been to summer camp except with the Boy Scouts, I was confronted with this idea of dedicating my life to Christ, of giving my life over to him. Now, it would be a year and a half later till God would call me to ministry, but it was this idea, am I willing to give my all for him? And it was there at camp. I can remember doing that. And then there's been times in my life that I've had to rededicate my life. And maybe you're here today, and you think, well, I'm too, you know, I've slipped away. Maybe you, you've, do, you've done some things that people know, and yet you need to come back to God and ask him to forgive you of your sin. Or maybe things in your life are so subtle that only you know between you and God and your relationship, and no one else around you can even detect what's going on. But you need to dedicate yourself to him. You need to come to the Lord and ask him to work in your life to find the opportunity to have second chance. It's great to think of this story with Peter, how God came and brought him back from a point of denial. And you know, one of the most important things about this that we didn't even get to is one of the purposes in him spending this time and restoring and building into Peter's life was because he was going to build into the lives of these other 10 disciples who in turn would build into the lives of what would be the early church. Sometimes God is going to come and work in your heart and life directly, but sometimes he's going to work with leaders and others to use them to speak truth into your life as well. And so with that thought in mind, as the worship team's going to come in just a moment after I pray, I encourage you to reflect and respond as you listen to this song called Second Chances. If you feel like you want to come to the altar and kneel here and pray, you can. If you want to be quietly in your seat and pray. But I just encourage you to really look at your life. Is it, does he have everything? Does he have all of you in every way of your life? Are you willing to do whatever Jesus would have you to do? Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Ed. If you'd like to listen to more sermons like this, be sure to subscribe to the podcast. Otherwise, if you'd like to listen to the latest sermon, download our mobile app. On iPhone or Android devices, the Pleasant View Baptist Church mobile app contains sermons from Pastor Ed Heading and also gives you information on events in the Quad Cities and a prayer wall where you can submit your prayer requests. You can find it by searching Pleasant View Baptist Church Bettendorf in the App Store. 
On behalf of the congregation of PVBC, I'm Jeremy Jones, and we're again thanking you for listening to this edition of the Pleasant View Baptist Podcast, where we're connecting, growing, and serving in Christ.